Well, open your copy of God's word, if you would, with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. We'll be in the whole of Genesis chapter 20, and then we're going to skip to the end of Genesis chapter 21 in uh, verses 22 through 34. The two texts that we're dealing with this morning, I'm dealing with them together as opposed to uh, separately or in the order that they appear in the text, because uh, in these texts, Abraham has two different encounters with the same uh, Gentile king named Abimelech. And there are some things that we can learn from each of these encounters in the life of Abraham. Now, these two encounters with Abimelech sandwich uh, a really important moment in the life of Abraham, which is the birth of Isaac, the fruit of the promise of of offspring, now uh, offspring of Abraham and Sarah's marriage, now on the scene in chapter 21. And so we'll get to Isaac uh, next week. But for this week, we're in chapter 20 and the end of, of chapter 21. There's some things in life that we can only learn if our parents allow us to make mistakes. I'm going to give a horrible example of parenting that I do not think you should emulate. Okay, so don't try this at home. But parents, you can probably sympathize with this. We who have small children or have had small children or at one time in our life have been small children have probably been told or told to our children, don't touch the stove when it's on, when it's hot, right? If you touch it, it's going to burn you. Uh, Don't do it. It's going to hurt. And we may go to pains when our children go to reach for the stove when it's on to slap their hand away or to move them away, to let them know, don't do that. It's hot. You're going to hurt yourself. But we also know that there are some things that our children will only learn through experience. And so it's not like we go and turn the stove on high and just wait to see what happens. That would be a horrible thing to do as a parent. But there may be times in which the stove is on and you warn your child, don't touch the stove, but you see them going for it anyway. And instead of slapping their hand away or pulling them away, you allow them to make the mistake to learn in a very tangible way not to touch the stove. Now, that's an extreme example. I'm not saying go turn on the stove and let your kids touch it. But we just know that there are some things that our kids don't learn that we won't learn unless we're allowed to make mistakes and, and learn that in a very physical and a tangible way. In a similar way, not the same, but a similar way, there are some things about God that we can't learn unless we make uh, mistakes, we commit sins, and then have to run to him for forgiveness. There are some things that we will only learn in life about who God is and his grace and mercy and his sovereign superintendence of all things if he allows us to make mistakes so that we can see his, our need for him. Such as kind of the case here in the life of Abraham between these two passages we'll look at this morning. We'll see here that uh, between these two passages that God sovereignly, that means with all control over the universe, sovereignly superintends the interactions between Abraham and Abimelech to prove that he is protecting his promises. It's possible to read the two texts that we'll look at this morning from a completely human perspective and gain relatively nothing from it. Other than Abraham sometimes made treaties with people. And Abraham sometimes did dumb stuff. But if we read these passages from, to try to read it from a divine perspective, from an eternal perspective, we see so much more at play. We see not only that Abraham makes mistakes and sometimes interacts with Gentile kings, but that God sovereignly superintends all of his interactions with other people. We'll find that God's sovereign superintendence of human action always fulfills his purposes. 
God's control over our lives, his allowance of our sin, his letting us make mistakes always fulfills his purposes. Though his ways may be inscrutable, that means we may not be able to ever know fully why he does what he does. We can say with confidence that his intentions are always good. His intentions are always right. His will is always holy, is always pure. Knowing and learning these things from our text this morning, I would hope that we would trust God's will for uh, trust that God's will for us really is good. That even in the dark times, even in the hard times, that God's will for our life really is good. And that knowing that God is good, irrespective of our circumstances, we would live enthusiastically in concert with his will. Having said that, let's turn our attention to the text. Would you stand with me as uh, as I read Genesis chapter 20? Again, Moses, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down this history of humanity, continues in the life of Abraham. Chapter 20, verse 1, he says, From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did did he, did Abraham not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? You have done to me the things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife. And female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We find in light of God's sovereign superintention of all of the interactions between Abraham and other people, specifically Abimelech, uh, here in this uh, first passage of chapter 20, That humans act on sinful intentions, but God superintends all things. That's what we find here. Humans act on sinful intentions, but God superintends all things. Look first at Abraham's sinful intentions. 
Abraham is not a hero in this text. There, there are many ways in which we would say, don't be like Abraham in this text. Abraham, just as he did in, in the second half of Genesis chapter 12, gives his wife away for the second time to protect himself. He goes to a foreign land and says, I'm afraid they're going to kill me and take my wife for their own. So we're going to tell a sort of a half lie to them that she's my sister so that they'll spare my life and, uh, and so that she won't be widowed. Now, the half-lie is a half-lie because Sarah is his half-sister. They have the same father, Terah, uh, but different mothers. A church member asked me after I preached Genesis chapter 12, it was only a half-lie that Abraham told, right? And I said, but a half-lie is still a whole lie, right? Half the truth is still all of a lie. The events of chapter 20 here are almost identical to those at the end of chapter 12 when Abraham uh, uh, allows Sarah, to, his wife, to be taken as a, as a wife, as a concubine of Pharaoh in Egypt. Again, in this chapter, we're left to look at Abraham and ask, really, Abe? Really? Again, like, like the first time you went through this wasn't enough to teach you the lesson. You had to go and do this again? We learn from Abraham in Genesis 12 that it is a good thing that God is faithful. Because as a human being, Abraham is consistently unfaithful. To trust that God will protect his promises. Now we know that Abraham is made righteous with God because of his faith. Because of his trust in God. But still in his humanity, he he acts on sinful intentions. Sinful self-preservation. To try to keep his own life going. To try to preserve the promises of God. Of offspring and land and blessing to nations on his own. And so he takes action to try to do God's work for him. In Abraham's sinful intentions of giving his wife away again, he's rebuked, he's rebuffed, he is reproved by a God-fearing Gentile king. Now, Abimelech is king of Gerar. Gerar is in the area of uh, what would become to know as the Philistines later. Abimelech is this sort of pre-Philistine Philistine king, but he fears God. The events of this chapter and the interaction between uh, Abraham and this uh, Gentile king Abimelech are very similar to Abraham's interaction with Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12. Let's see how this plays out, right? Uh, uh, Abraham gives his wife or, or, or lies about his wife, Sarah, saying she's my sister. And so Abimelech goes, oh, well, she's available to be taken as another wife. So I'll bring her into my house. And so he does. And that evening, that night, God appears to the Gentile king Abimelech in a dream with the warning about Sarah. God says to Abimelech, you're a dead man because the woman you've just taken is another man's wife. Abimelech is terrified. Rightly so. In verses 4 and following, we we read Abimelech's response. He's repentant in his response to God. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did the man, did Abraham not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself is complicit in the lie. She said, he's my brother. Abimelech, this Gentile, God-fearing king, says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He admits that what he has done is sinful. It's wrong to have another man's wife. He knows he stands in a bad place uh, with God because of this sin that he has committed. And, and even though the sin is not his, first of all, he's still now guilty. He's still now culpable if he continues this sin. And so he responds the best way that anyone can with repentance, recognizing his wrong. The response of God, God comes to Abimelech in that dream and he affirms Abimelech's repentant heart. He says, yes, you have done this thing in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning. You have done this because you've been brought unwittingly into this circle of sin. and, And I have protected you from making it worse. 
So Abimelech gets right with the Lord and then he goes to Abraham and he rebukes Abraham. He says, dude, what have you done to us? You put my entire kingdom in jeopardy because you lied to me about who your wife is. You've done things to me, Abimelech says, that ought not to be done. This is a horrible thing you have brought on me in my kingdom, Abraham. Being rebuked, Abraham gives a rather lame excuse, doesn't he? He says, I I thought nobody in this land feared the Lord. And so I told this lie because I thought you would kill me and take my wife. That's what I thought. I assumed. And we all know what happens when you assume. Abraham makes assumptions about the king Abimelech that are simply not true. He assumes Abimelech has no reverence for God, but that's not the case at all. And in so assuming this, Abraham makes a massive error again. Nevertheless, Abraham prays to God on Abimelech's behalf, and Abimelech is healed. And not only him, but his wife and all the women of his house who previously were unable to bear children. So we see Abraham's sinful intentions, but we see in this text God's divine superintendence. If we're looking at this text from just a human perspective, all we see is what we've talked about to this point. But if we look at it from an eternal perspective, from from the perspective of God, we see so much more in this text. The significance of this passage is not found in Abraham's sin, nor in Abimelech's righteousness, but in the action of God. This text is about how God works in Abraham's life. Yes, Abraham and Sarah both act sinfully in lying to Abimelech. What they did was wrong. But it is God who comes to Abimelech by a dream to warn him. It is God who protects Abimelech from sinning. And it is God who opens the wombs of the women of Gerar so that they may bear children. So first, God is actively involved in superintending, that is, overseeing, orchestrating the events of this chapter. Here's this apparent paradox of God's will, God's sovereignty, and human agency, human action. What Abraham and Sarah may have intended from their sinful hearts to preserve themselves, God's superseding intention is to use it for the ultimate good of Abraham and the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. This is the second aspect of this narrative's significance, that all aspects of the promise of Genesis 12 are protected by the sovereign superintendence of God. You remember the promises to Abraham from chapter 12 of Genesis? Right? God promises Abraham offspring, children, right? Even in his old age that he will have a, a son and he'll be the father of many nations. He promises to Abraham land, all the land of his sojourning. Everywhere that he goes will be land that belongs to him and to his offspring forever. He promises that uh, God promises to Abraham that he'll bless those who bless him. He'll curse those who curse him. And that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Regarding the promise first of offspring, the the promise of children that will come from Abraham. God protects in this passage the sexual integrity of Sarah and Abimelech both by preventing Abimelech from consummating an illicit marriage. God protects his promise of rightful offspring through Sarah uh, by Abraham by not allowing Abimelech to consummate this marriage. And with respect to the blessing of the, uh, of the land, we see at the end that Abimelech uh, holds open his arms in, in front of Abraham and says, look at all of the land before you go wherever it pleases you. Or almost a, a reversal of Genesis chapter uh, 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 14, where 
Abraham says to Lot, look at all the land that's before us. You choose which way you want to go, to the left or to the right, and whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. Right? Abraham's generous offer to Lot is now uh, reciprocated through Abimelech to Abraham. Go, Abraham, go wherever you want. Stake out any portion of land that you'd like. It's yours. God now protecting and, and bringing fruit to the promise of land through this Gentile king. And with respect to the blessing of the nations through Abraham, the third part of the promise of Genesis 12, God opens the wombs of the women of Gerar who previously were barren upon Abraham's prayer on behalf of this Gentile king. All of the promises being affirmed, being protected in the life of Abraham in spite of maybe even through the sin that he brings into his life and the life of Abimelech. The question arises... As we look at the text this way, does God use our sin for his purposes? Can God take my sin and the sin of other people as horrid, as wretched, as ugly as it may be and use it for good? Better yet, can God take the sin and intend it for good? The answer from Genesis 20 is apparently yes. Yes, he can. What Abraham intended for his own protection in lying about his wife and allowing her to be taken away, God intends to use to prove his protection of his promise, to prove his blessing to Abraham and to bless the nations through him. Notice how Abraham would not see yet again the faithfulness of God if God does not allow him to commit this sinful act. And so God takes the evil intentions, the sinful intentions of Abraham's heart and turns them for his, not only for Abraham's good, but for God's own glory in this text. The theme continues when we get to Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34, the second interaction with Abimelech. Now, between these two passages, Isaac is born. And that's a really exciting time in the life of Abraham and in the course of Genesis. And we'll get to that next week. But uh, after the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Abimelech have another encounter. We read in Genesis 21, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so, so you also will deal with me with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and he gave them to Abimelech, and the two made a covenant. We uh, looked at the covenant process several weeks ago in Genesis 15, cutting animals in half, letting their blood flow in a trench, both parties of the covenant walking through the blood saying, may this much and more be done to me if I fail to keep my end of the covenant. They make a covenant together. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? Abraham said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. It's a gift in good faith, a promissory note. Uh, regarding the ownership of this piece of property. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham journeyed many days in the land of the Philistines. 
where we saw previously that humans act on sinful intentions, but God superintends all things for his purposes. Here in the second interaction between Abraham and Abimelech, we find that humans react to protect their interests, but God proactively works his will. Humans react to protect their interests, but God proactively works his will. First, look at Abraham and Abimelech's interests that they're trying to protect. Here in this passage, they contrive to make a treaty over a water well. It's a well that Abraham had dug in the land that Abimelech had allowed him to live in. Uh, apparently, some of Abimelech's soldiers or, or men of his court had gone and seized the well from Abraham's herdsmen. And now there's a fight over it. This text uh, is interesting in that it points out that Abimelech is perhaps still the better of the two men. Abimelech recognizes that God's favor is upon Abraham. These are the first words that he says to him, that God has protected Abraham in the past and will continue to do so. He says, God is with you in all that you do. Now with Abraham's clan enlarging, he has a son and now the potential for more offspring for generations to come uh, out of Abraham. Uh, Abimelech wants certain assurances that Abraham will not act deceitfully. Not like he has a pattern of doing that or anything, but Abimelech wants to know, Abraham, are you going to lie to me again? Or are we, are you going to deal with me treacherously to get more of what you want? Because that's not what I'm looking for here. Abraham agrees with, to Abimelech, says, yes, I will. I'll, I'll swear that I'll uh, deal honestly with you and your descendants and your posterity. And in this audience with Abimelech, Now that they've come to an understanding uh, about how they're going to interact with one another, Abraham raises the issue of the well that has been seized. It's like, hey, man, I I dug this well. My my herds are watered here. Uh, Your people stole it. What's the deal? Abimelech's like, I I had no idea that this happened. right? And uh, we don't have any reason to believe that Abimelech is is lying. We have no reason to believe Abimelech is being deceitful. Uh, It really does seem that this has sort of happened um, behind his back uh, without him seeing, uh, similar to how he was deceived in chapter 20, where Abraham and Sarah both lied and Abraham was deceived and brought into sin. Abimelech swears he knew nothing about it, and so he makes a covenant with Abraham to ensure his previous agreement of allowing Abraham to take possession of Abraham's choice of the land. The covenant of peace between Abraham and Abimelech is settled here at this point, and the passage closes. It's a fairly straightforward passage. Abraham is protecting his water rights, and Abimelech is protecting his own household against the deceitfulness of Abraham, who has a pattern of acting deceitfully, and any potential curse that may come to Abimelech's house from displeasing Abraham. Abimelech is acting in his own self-interest and the interests of his kingdom. Abraham is acting in the self-interest of his clan and his ability to water his flocks and to prosper. If we're reading this text from just a human perspective, all we see is this treaty over a water well. And we miss the broader significance. The broader significance of this passage is that God proactively works his will. We see not only Abimelech and Abraham's uh, personal interest, but we also see God's, and here I'm exercising all of my pastoral alliterative skills, God's proactive power and promise. God's proactive, that means acting beforehand, his power and promise. In this text, God proves his character and his power to both Abimelech and Abraham once again. Listen again to Abimelech's words. Listen to his admission of what is true. He says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. A Gentile king recognizing 
the power of God and the presence of God in the life of Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God, by that same God that is with you, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you also deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Because God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech has a very clear understanding of just who is behind all of Abraham's success. Abimelech knows exactly who is behind all of Abraham's uh, uh, prosperity, who's behind the birth of his son at the age of a hundred, his son Isaac. And the person who's behind all of that is not Abraham. The person behind Abraham's success is God, the everlasting God, El Olam, as the text calls him. Because God has already both cursed and then blessed Abraham, uh, uh, blessed Abimelech through Abraham. Abimelech is then able to maintain a proper reverence for God. In chapter 20, uh, Abimelech is cursed by God because he's acted uh, sinfully against Sarah. Right? There's the, all of the women of his house are made barren so that they cannot uh, have children. But then as Abraham intercedes to God on Abimelech's behalf, Abimelech is blessed. His whole household is healed and they're able to have prosperity. Because he knows that this is how God works with and through Abraham, he recognizes that it is God who's in control of all of these things. Abimelech's reverence for God then moves him to deal honestly with Abraham. I've, I've dealt honest with you, honestly with you in the past. And because God's with you in all that you do, I want to deal honestly with you in the future. But he also wants to persuade Abraham to deal honestly with him. God is with you, and I want to deal honestly with you. But because God is with you, will you swear by that God to deal honestly with me? God proves his character and his power that it is he who is behind all that is going on in Abraham's life. And then God shows up again, sort of in the background, if you will, behind the curtain, protecting the land that was given to Abraham by promise. Right? Part of the promise of Genesis 12, offspring, land, and blessing. Do you see here again how God is protecting that promise? In the previous scene in chapter 20, right? Abimelech takes Abraham out to his kingdom and he says, look at all the land in front of you. Take what you want. Dwell there. It's yours. But now there's a conflict over a water well and they're trying to figure out who it belongs to and, and, uh, and who gets rights to it. Uh, and, and immediately the promise of land is under threat, right? If the well is, is confiscated by Abimelech's men and not given back, well, immediately we're, we're left to wonder, is God going to make good on his promise to give, land, uh, to give Abraham all the land of his sojourning? Or is God going to forsake that promise and, and let it be taken away piece by piece? The answer is that God will protect his promise to Abraham. After God has brought about the promised son to Abraham in chapter 21, which we'll look at next week, immediately the security of the promise of land to dwell in and the promise of land for Abraham's offspring to dwell in is under threat by Abimelech's men. Apart from the previous encounter with Abimelech and God's divine superintendence of those events, Abimelech has no reason to desire to deal honorably with Abraham. Abimelech is the more powerful character. He's a more powerful king at, at this time and in this place compared to Abraham. Abimelech does not have to deal honestly with Abraham, but because he knows that God is with him in all that he does, he wants to deal honestly with Abraham. Because of their earlier encounter, Abimelech knows that Abraham is shrouded by God's favor and that when Abraham is blessed, so also are those who bless him. 
Abimelech knows that if I deal honestly with Abraham, if I bless Abraham, I will be blessed by God through him. So, simple cost-benefit analysis. This is not the way to approach your life with Christ. But from Abimelech's perspective, it just makes sense to deal honestly, to deal with integrity with the person that has God's favor. God proactively works his, his power and his promise. Now, these passages, looking at them from a divine perspective, an eternal perspective, trying to pull back the curtain a little bit to see what God is doing, I think lead us to ask four questions. First of all, can God be trusted? It's an honest, it's an honest and a valid question to ask. Can God be trusted? Trustworthiness is a function of an individual's inherent goodness or morality. Right? You don't trust evil people. Right? Person that you know to be wicked, you generally don't give your, your unfettered trust to. Right? A wicked person can make you a promise that, 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 uh, that maybe they intend in the, in the, in, in the honest, in, in, in honesty, but if they're a wicked person, we, we don't have any means to really trust that they'll make good on their promise. Sometimes a wicked person may make a promise and change his or her mind and undo the promise that they made. There's no re- or, or sometimes a wicked person may make a promise. Uh, at, uh, sometimes a wicked person may make a promise not intending to fulfill it. Other times a wicked person may may uh, may make a promise knowing they will not fulfill it. Right. So we generally don't give our trust to wicked people, but we will to good people, to morally, uh, to people of moral integrity. Trustworthy is a function of an individual's inherent goodness and morality. It's a function of their reputation and history. Has this person made promises and then made good on those promises in the past? When you go to buy a new car and they run your credit history, that's what they're looking for. Your reputation for making payments on a schedule uh, in, in a timely way. An individual's trustworthiness is also a function of their power to fulfill their word. Not only have they made a promise and made good on promises in the past, but is this individual powerful enough? Does this individual have the capacity to actually make good on the promise that they are giving? These are questions that we're asking of God, brought to ask of God in Genesis 20. God, can you be trusted? Are you good? Do you have a reputation of making good on your promises? Do you have power to fulfill your word? The answer to all of these things is yes. Yes, God is moral. He proved to us in Genesis chapter 19 in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that the judge of all the earth does act with justice and mercy. He is good. God has shown that his reputation is one of keeping promises. Already in Abraham's life, we've seen several points where the promise of offspring, land, and blessing has, has been under threat. And yet God has protected that promise all along the way. We know that God has power to fulfill his word as well. Again, take us back to the promise of Genesis 12. Promise of offspring, promise of land, promise of blessing. Our texts today, chapter 20 and 21, are the slices of bread that sandwich the meat of the birth of Isaac, the son of promise. Yes, God has power to fulfill his word. God has power to cause a a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to conceive and give birth to a son. God is powerful to protect his promises. So yes, God can be trusted. Trusted by Abraham and trusted by you, friend. Second question these texts cause us to ask is this. Who is really in control? Who's really in control? And, And by that, we could ask a second question. Does God intend our sin for his purposes? Does God intend 
superintend, even orchestrate our sin for his purposes. Now, we're not here saying that God is the source of sin. We're not here saying that God is to blame for our sin. But we are saying is that God is so infinitely knowledgeable and powerful and that from even eternity past before you or I or the earth ever existed, that he has ordained even our sin to accomplish his purposes. It's hard to understand. This is hard to understand. Because we often want God's intention to, to be the, the neat, clean, happy ending. We want God's will to end, uh, to look like a Hallmark movie. Right? Where the recalcitrant husband has his heart softened and loves his wife the way that Christ loves the church. Right? Where the person who, whose heart is just hardened against God and the gospel is finally and miraculously saved at the end of the movie. Where revival breaks out in a, in a town full of broken and hardened, lost people. We want the neat, clean, happy ending. And we expect oftentimes for God to do that. God, do it the clean way. Do it the happy way. Do it the way I expect it to turn out. But the happy ending, the expected ending, the clean, neat, tidy, every end tied up kind of ending is not always the most God-glorifying ending. The clean ending of the Gospels would be for Jesus to be rightly recognized as the Messiah and all the people fall in repentance and worship him. That's the neat, clean, happy, hallmark ending of the Gospels. But God's ending of the Gospels, his intended ending for Christ's life, is not for everyone to recognize immediately who he is, fall on their face in repentance uh, and worship, but his, in, his intention is for Jesus to die for the sins of the people who will not recognize him. And all at once, in God intending his son to die for sins, all at once, God is satisfying his wrath against sin, the judgment against sin that he, that he cannot but pour out and makes available to all who place faith in Christ the love of God, the, the mercy, the grace that he has upon those who trust in Jesus, his son. The neat, clean, tidy ending is for Jesus not to ever die on the cross. But the neat, clean, tidy ending is not the most God-glorifying ending. And it's not the best ending for your life. The best ending for your life is for Christ to die for your sins. To make a way for you to be right with God. For him to be raised from the dead. So that the promise of your own resurrection and eternal life. As you place all of your faith and trust in him might be secured. That's the better ending. It's not neat, clean, and happy. But it is glorious. Turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe you're hearing me say that the God intended Jesus to die for sins and that's the better ending. And you're going, that seems like really a mean thing. I just, I can't square that with who God is in my mind. I can't square that with, with my conception of God. I'm going to read you a passage of scripture in Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. That is not going to help you answer that question, but it is truth that we need to hear and remind ourselves of today. We who say, I cannot imagine that God would desire his son to die. That just sounds like cosmic child abuse. We read this in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The servant of the Lord, the the suffering servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Some 700 years before Christ was ever born, before the Son of God ever took on flesh, the prophet Isaiah is speaking about who the suffering servant of the Lord would be and what he would be like and what his life, the purpose of his life would be. And verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God desired, he willed to put his son to death for your sin. That's not a neat, clean answer, okay? Like we, there's some things, some, some paradoxes in the scripture. We just have to, have to hold on to tightly in the, in the hand of faith and just trust that God's intention is good. That it is good that he desired his son to die for my sins. Because if he doesn't, I have no forgiveness. If he doesn't bear my iniquity, I do. If he doesn't pay the penalty for my sin, I carry that debt. I carry that load. Turn with me in Matthew 26, verse 39. You're now going to the Gospels. The end of Jesus, toward the end of Jesus' life, the night that he's praying before he'll be arrested and then crucified the next day. Jesus, in his own words, Matthew 26, verse 39, we read, going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What he's saying is, let the cup of your wrath not be poured out on me. If there's any other way for your will to be done, do it that way. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus says, in, in my humanity right now, Father, I don't want to die for the sins of everyone. It's a painful, horrible death that awaits me. If there's any other way, God, for Father, for you to save humanity, do it that way, but still... Don't do what I want you to do. You do what you want to do. So it was the will of God for sinful men to unjustly put his son to death so that he could reckon his son's death as a sacrifice for our sin. Who put Jesus to death? Ultimately, we know that it is God by his will put his son to death for our sake. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Not my will, Father, but your will. This is not the happy, neat, clean, hallmark ending, but it is the best one for your soul and for mine. Genesis chapter 50. We see this play out in in real time in the life of Joseph. Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers because of their despisement of him. Sold into slavery, he eventually ends up in Egypt as a slave, rises to second in power in the land of Egypt, so that uh, when there's famine in the land of uh, Palestine, where Jacob and his 12, uh, well, 11 sons are living, they go to Egypt to be fed and to find food. And in coming to Egypt, they're recognized by Joseph. And Joseph not only feeds them with all that they need, but he, he arranges for them to live in the best part of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, after uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, the uh, father Israel, had died, the other brothers uh, come to Joseph, who's still second in charge of all Egypt, and they're terrified. They're thinking that that now that their father's dead, Joseph has no reason to be kind to them. And so they, they come to try to continue to make peace with their brother. And Joseph says to them this. 
Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, and their actions were evil. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You intended this for evil, but God superintended it for good. Who's really in control? Does God intend our sin for his purposes? The question is that God is in control. He's sovereignly in control of all things. And yes, he does intend our sin for his purposes. Now, friends, it is not for us to ask how God does this. It is not for us to ask God, how is it that you can from eternity superintend all of my evil actions to work out for your good purposes? How do you do that? God, let me into your eternal mind. Help me to understand. It's not for us to ask how God does this, but it is for us to know that he does this. And it is for us to know that he is good, that his purposes are right. His purposes, though inscrutable, are are not only defensible, but they are righteous and holy and pure and good. The second question these texts ask us to uh, lead us to ask is how should I read the Bible? How should I read the Bible? If God is in control, he intends even my sin to work for his purposes. If, if God can be trusted, how should I read the Bible? You should read the Bible, friend, with God at the center of it. There is one consistent character in all of Scripture, and it is God. Now, in the Bible, these 66 books, a library of God's word to us, there are a good many human characters to learn from. Some to imitate and others to avoid. And some of them have moments of, of both imitability and, uh, and despicability at the same time. But at the center of all that is going on, at the center of this blessed text that we hold in our hand, is God who appears in the very first line of it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The one who made all that we know and see and experience by the power of his word. And all of this book is about him and his work of rescuing humanity from their sin. It tells us of his perfect goodness and his holiness. This book reveals uh, uh, our total sinfulness. That we are at the moment of birth destined to rebel, to, to rebel against his holiness. It tells us further of his love for his creatures that motivates his mercy and his grace to provide for us a way out of the hopelessly sinful condition of our lives. The Bible tells us that God himself took on flesh in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived a sinless life, was put to death by sinful men, and in his death became sin for us. Jesus, the God-man, rose from the dead, proving his victory over sin and death to reign as the rightful king of the cosmos, to be lovingly worshipped by all who by faith trust his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. This truly awesome word from God reveals that this broken world in which we live will not always be this way. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he will surely return on a final day of judgment. And all who are united to Jesus, united to Christ by their faith and submission to him as Lord will live forever in this world, the new heavens and new earth, this world uncorrupted by sin, made new. And all who have rejected and scorned Jesus their whole life will spend eternity in hell, a place where the infinite wrath of God against their sin will be revealed and laid upon those who refused his gracious offer of salvation. The Bible ends with God 
and his word. The Bible, uh, it begins with God and his word. It ends with God and his word. If you turn to the last page of your Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. At the end of this vision that John has of the risen Jesus and events to come, we read this. He who testifies to these things, that is, that is Jesus, the Christ, the risen Lord, who showed me this vision said, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, says John. This book begins with God and ends with God. So who do you think is the center of all of it in between all those other pages? Still God himself. So, dear friends, read the Bible this way. With God and his purposes at the center. With God and his redemption in full focus. With your eyes on the infinitely marvelous and loving God of the universe who pursued and chose to save rebellious sinners to demonstrate his perfect love, mercy, and grace. Do not come to this text as a mosaic of of fortune cookie statements and and Twitter-length encouragements for your life. That's not what this book is. You come to this book to know who God is. And in knowing who God is, you can know yourself rightly. In knowing who God is, you can see your sin clearly. In knowing who God is and his love and grace and mercy and justice, you can see Christ rightly and in full relief as the one who bears the penalty for our sin and is raised from the dead to give us the gift of salvation. Read your Bible with God at the center. Fourth and finally, these texts uh, lead us to ask the question, how should I live my life? Can God be trusted? Who's in control? How should I read the Bible? Now, how should I live my life? If God can be trusted and he's in control and he's the center of scripture, how do I live my life? Well, you live your life with enthusiasm for God's will. His will, which is your sanctification, your Christ likeness, your growth into the image of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through 30. You'll see the text on the screen behind me. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Christian, you want to know what God's will for your life is? That you be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the author and perfecter of our salvation. And he he intends our salvation to move toward his purpose, his will, which is that we look like his son. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The apostle Paul continues, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Notice that being transformed is not something we can do to ourselves. It's in the passive tense. This is action that is happening to us. We are transformed by an outside source, which we know is the, the Holy Spirit. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is for you to be like Christ. And as you offer your life as a living sacrifice to God, he will show you what is his will for you to be like Christ. And by the way, his will is good. It's acceptable and it is perfect. You still don't believe me that God's will is your sanctification. That's fine. Turn to first Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. And I'll let Paul make the point for me again. Paul says to the Thessalonian church in first Thessalonians four, finally, then brothers, 
We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, as how, do you, how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, in case you needed it any more plainly. This is the will of God. This is what he intends for your life. This is what all of his, his sovereign superintendence is leading to. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. How ought you to live your life? With enthusiasm for God's will, your sanctification, with excitement and exuberance about repentance, about turning from sin and trusting Christ more each day. That ought to excite you, dear Christian. If you leave church on a Sunday morning feeling a little bit less holy because your sin has been revealed, praise God! You are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit's working you. He's saying, brother, sister, this is sin in your life that you need to turn from so you can be conformed into the image of my son, which, by the way, is my will for you, your sanctification. If you leave church on a day that you're just exultant because you've experienced the presence of, of, of Christ that day or in your personal private devotions at home, that's good. Rejoice in that because when you have joy in knowing Christ, you're showing that you're being conformed into the image of Christ. That's good, your sanctification. So whether you're rejoicing in God for his goodness in your life in the presence of Christ or you're feeling convicted of sin all the same rejoice be happy be glad know that God is at work he's superintending his power in your life and even the sin of your life to work for his purposes his will your sanctification your Christ likeness dear friends there's there's nothing better to live our lives for there's nothing to live for with more enthusiasm than to be made into the image of the son Know this morning from Genesis 20 and 21 that God is sovereign. He's in control. There's nothing that surprises him. In fact, if if God were just sitting on the outskirts, reacting, responding to, to Abraham's sin, like he's just sitting in heaven watching a football game, and one of his angels comes and said, Sir, 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 we got a problem. Abraham gave his wife away to another man again. God is not like, oh my gosh, I got to pause this, DVR this real quick so I can go deal with it. God is not surprised by Abraham's idiocy. God is using his stupid sin to, to show him his will and his power. God is not reactive. He's proactive. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. Know that God is sovereign. Trust his impeccable goodness. Set God as the focus and joy of your life. Be changed into the image of his son by actively pursuing his will for your life, your sanctification. Revel in repentance. Take joy in turning from sin, knowing that God's will is being done in you. And as you do these things and live this deeply God-centered life, you will find him to be your greatest satisfaction. And you will find his will to be your greatest delight. Let's pray.